Greetings. Welcome to Wednesday night. You guys ready to get started? All right. Let's open in prayer and we'll jump in. Father, we bless you. We thank you for this night. We thank you for this time to study the scriptures together and pray that you would um, help us, lead us, and guide us in, in, in this study. And may it be fruitful for our souls, uh, for our hearts, as well as for our minds. And may that fruit uh, bear uh, um, its maximum usage outside of this place, not simply from for edifying us in here, but for edifying others and glorifying you uh, outside of this place. So we bless you. We pray for your leading and guiding and your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're we're on lesson nine tonight. Um, we're working through this book. I, you got the book, right, Joe? Yeah. You know, hold it up. So I don't know if y'all have seen it. That's the book we're working through. Um, we're uh, again we're in lesson nine. Um, we're well, it's by Michael Heiser. Let me put that up there. And just kind of going through point by point. The whole point of the book is. Um, to try to find to try to to find some meaning to dig down into some of the passages a little bit more perplexing or or weird or strange or why is that in the Bible and say okay if if it's if it's in there and especially if it's weird it's probably really important because they included it and so how then do we discover what it means and then how do we apply what it means to our lives so that's kind of the whole point what we're going through here. Um, what we've covered so far uh, out of the Old Testament, again, I'm not going to do a huge review. I'm just going to hit the highlights. Um, the, the lessons, by the way, somebody was asking me this last week. Um, if you want to look at lessons we've done, they're starting to get posted on YouTube. And where they would be is under, on, if you go to our channel on YouTube, CCF Kingwood, CCF Kingwood, there, it'll have like home and, and videos and all this. At the top, there's different headings. The one that says live, if you click on the one that says live, you'll see these lessons up there, posted up there. So if you want to go back and listen to one, or you know, or we, we cover one, you go, oh, I want to listen to that one again, or you miss one, you can go back there and hit. So we've just started posting those up there. But some of the stuff we've covered in here, um, uh, out of the Old Testament, is the Ancient's Guide to the Galaxy, understanding cosmology from an Old Testament perspective. And that's so important because they speak to it over and over again uh, throughout, um, throughout the scriptures. Uh, we looked at um, walking like an Israelite, the people of their times, why, uh, even the Bible needed upgrading. And we did a whole lesson on what inspiration is and how a lot of times we miss with that. Hey, Robert. Um, and uh, spell-checking the Bible, looking at original text issues that... that Sometimes we miss, and we say, "Why did this translation translate that way, or versus this way?" You know, what are they what are they wrestling with? Um, why circumcision? A miraculous people. We we looked at the the abandonment of the child in the basket case, uh, which is Moses' life was about promoting benefit to others, and then we looked at the the um, a lesson of courage that never gets taught, Zipporah creating her own bridegroom, a true bridegroom of blood by circumcising her son. And uh, is, there, is there really a, a, a sin offering? Like, in other words, what makes for purification? So those are things we looked at in the Old Testament. You can, again, take a look at those lessons. 
Um, in the New Testament, some of the things we've covered are Jesus declaring war. What's this thing about the gates of hell? What does that all mean? Having guardian angels. And this one still, you know, uh, that the fact that we may run into an angel and not know it, you know, find out later. Oh, my goodness, we were entertaining an angel. So uh, it's the Bible says that, you know, you be hospitable. You never know when you are entertaining a divine being because uh, they come just, uh, in the form of men. And then the New Testament, quote, unquote, does the New Testament misquote the Old Testament? We learn how the New Testament often teaches us from, uh, from the scriptures. When Jesus talking about Satan falling like lightning. When did that actually happen? The healing serpent. Uh, if only the afflicted would believe. Interesting topic. Then, then gee, what did walking on water really mean? And the question was, who is this guy? You know, who is this? They were wondering who it was. All right. So what's coming up next week? We're going to uh, we're going to be back into the Old Testament. This week we're going to be in the New Testament. Um, uh, but next week we're going to be back into the Old Testament, and the subject is the devils in the details. So what's that about? Um, we're going to be looking at the Day of Atonement, and there's this character in the Day of Atonement that um, a lot of times gets actually translated over in a lot of our Bibles. Some of their translations actually introduce who that character is. And uh, and we're going to find that there's some really interesting theology going on in the Day of Atonement that's really important um, that we'll miss in a lot of our translations. So we're going to dig into that next week. Uh, For for tonight, we're we're doing Double Door Meets Philip and Peter. So... um, and by the way, if you're reading the book, um, I'm, I'm not going to do... We're going to stack aside, huh? <laughs> so I'm going to be standing like this on the video, you know. Um, uh, on, if you're reading the book, it goes all Old Testament and then all New Testament. Um, I'm, I'm kind of alternating back and forth. Uh, if there is a... I'm not necessarily doing every one of them. So if you have the book, somebody actually approached me last Sunday and said... Um, I know you're not going to do all of them. I hope you do these. So if there's ones that you really want us to do, you want us to get into, make sure you let me know so I don't skip that one because I'm not going to do I'm not going to do every single one of them. We're just going to just going to hit 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 the highlights on a lot of them. All right. So uh, Dumbledore meets Philip and Peter. This is on page 147 in the book. This one, if you um, if you have it, and what this is really about, it's a showdown between Peter. And someone, a character in the scriptures referred to as Simon the Magician. Uh, in later text, I think he's referred to as Simon Magnus as well, um, um, in which are, you know, it's possible that, him it's possible it's not. It's possible he may not even been real. So, all right. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the passage. I'm going to take some time, take a few minutes, and we're going to read that whole passage that introduces us to what we're going to talk about tonight, just so we get a, a good, what the story is. And then we'll get into the story and we'll break it down. So here's the story. This is in the book of, uh, the book of Acts. It's in chapter 8. starts out in verse 9. And it says this. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. But they, paid, they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. Um, you know, the, uh, 
uh, probably a more direct translation would be, and this is going to be important, we're going to break this down, is this man is the great power. This man is the great power. Um, and so real important to catch that, that that's what he was called. It's going to, that's, that's important to parsing this story, this narrative. All right, verse 11. They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with magic. But when, they believe, but when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Philip, who was, this is not Philip, and I'll say this later, I'm getting ahead of myself, but not Philip the apostle, but Philip, one of the seven from early book of Acts. He travels north. He's an evangelist. He's preaching the gospel. He's in Samaria, and this... This uh, many people in the Samaritan city come to Christ and get baptized in the name of Jesus uh, because of coming to believe the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. All right. Even Simon himself, this magician, believes. And after being baptized, he continues with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. Now. When the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So they're like, oh, the Samaritans, the word of God, let's go. So Peter and John, they they head north. They traveled down from Jerusalem, heading north. Um, You can ask me why I put it that way later. That's a little, that's worth some points if you catch on that. So verse 15, they they came down, uh, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John go go to the city of Samaria. Why? Um, they'd heard they received the Lord. They want to pray for them now to receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, when they, now, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, now when Simon saw, Simon the magician, when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. That's huge. Verse 21, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, if possible, that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And, and Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing you have said may come upon me. And that's where our passage ends right there. So, kind of breaking it down a little bit. We had this character, Simon, Simon the magician. He's in Samaria, which is that northern re- region. He's in a particular city. And he's hailed at, he's called God's great power. That's what they call him. They call him God's great power because they they see these amazing things he's doing. Um, Now, Simon, uh, when when Philip goes up and starts preaching the gospel, he hears the gospel from from Philip. This is Philip the evangelist, not Philip one of the twelve. And he becomes a believer. He becomes a follower of Christ. But... He sees Peter and John come up. He sees the power of the Holy Spirit go out by laying on of hands. And he tries to purchase this power from Peter. Now, um, what's interesting is today, Simon the Magician, he's not, he is not renowned for any great deeds. Rather, he's literally infamous 
for trying to pay money for a church office. The, he's for trying to pay money to do what the apostles were doing. And that it, it's, it's so much infinite, infamy that there's literally a theological term called simony. Simony. And we're actually going to look at a definition. What is simony? Um, and there's, you could find it in different theological uh, 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 dictionaries. I tried to find one that uh, was you know, kind of a little bit more easier to understand. So this comes from the name of Simon Magnus, who thought that the power of the Holy Spirit could be bought. Now, um, that's where it comes from. The sale or purchase of ecclesiastical position or office, this evil, though condemned by the plain teaching of Scripture and by the Council of Chalcedon in 451, became widespread in medieval times and was one of the corruptions the reformers battled against. So, you know, um, not only did it start with Simon, this is something that has plagued the church for millennia. This constant battle where people want to pay money for ecclesiastical position and ecclesiastical power. Um, The practice was dealt with only very slowly in England, where the monarch assumed the pope's power, including trafficking in ecclesiastical preferment. In other words, oh, you want a position? You know, cough it up. I mean, this is this is this sin right here. This root of sin has been plagued throughout church history. Um, it was a source of much contention in Scotland as the Presbyterians opposed the imposition impositions of the Episcopal party. So some of the denominational a, a strife that we've had through um, through the centuries or over issues like this. That's not to say everybody in that denomination. I'm trying to put down that denomination. I'm just saying these were real struggles in the church and there today. How many times do we see people doing things or wanting things, trying to obtain favor for money? And look at how sharply Peter comes down on that. Yes, yes. Sure, sure. I mean, that's the whole point in Matthew 7. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the, and, and this is the point. So um, this is the point of the story is that here this, we have this one story that happens to this one person. And this is, um, and what's interesting is he's not known for being a magician. He's not known, um, I mean, he is known for being a magician, but that's not what he's really inf- infamous for. He's not infamous that he became a magician, became a believer. He's infamous for this trying to buy God's power with money. Now, now I'm going to quote from Heiser here. But is that all there is to this story? Hardly. Uh, don't uh, like I like how he says this. Don't look away now, or you'll miss what's behind the magic. <laughs> you'll miss the sleight of hand. Don't look away, or you'll miss what's behind all this. Now. Let's look at how first century audience would have comprehended this episode in a Samaritan setting. So we're going to go back. We're going to, we're going to teleport ourselves. Are, are we ready? We're in a very special time machine. We can go back. You know, Adventures in Odyssey had this machine you know, that you could get in. You could go to different places in history. And somehow they all spoke perfect American English everywhere they went. And uh, uh, we're going to transport ourselves back. And we're going to take a little look into... Um, uh, what, what's going on then? All right, so Simon gets this title from the people. The people, notice the scriptures say the people began to call him this. And this title is God's Great Power. 
Now, this title has uh, tremendous significance to it. So it comes specifically from something called the Samaritan Targum. Targum. Now, the word Targum just means translation. That's what it means. Um, and, and it's a translation from the Aramaic language, from uh, translating the Hebrew scriptures into Aramaic. Okay? So why? When, when, when the Jews uh, it, came back from exile... Um, out of Babylon, if you study the book of Daniel you, with us, you remember they were carried off into exile. And then there was different times the Jews came back in groups uh, and resettled in the area. Um, the, the primary language, because of the, um, the Persians, the primary language that people were speaking, the day-to-day language of, of Second Temple Judaism, that was Aramaic. It wasn't Hebrew. It was Aramaic. And so the, 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 the scholars, the Bible scholars, those that um, were responsible for the Word of God back then did the same thing we do. Well, we need to get the Bible into people's language. You know, if you want to be able to read and understand the Bible, we need to get it in your language. Well, the Targumim, there's, there's several versions of what's called the Targumim. Targumim is plural for Targum, so it wouldn't be Targum. Sometimes you'll hear it the Targums, which is fine. Um, but uh, the Targumim these is, is, um, means aramaic translations now what's interesting about them is most of them are not word for word translations they're they're thought for thought they're they're much more paraphrased so we can get they're they're really important to study because we can get into when you get a thought or a a paraphrase you understand how they were thinking about the hebrew because they're going to paraphrase it here so it helps understand some of the ancient understandings now that's free it's not in our lesson but i just want us to understand why these targumim are so important now the samaritans had a version of this they had a version in which they had translated the scriptures into into aramaic and um and it was known as the samaritan pentateuch so it's where they took the torah the first five books of the bible and they translated a a, a, a version of that into aramaic that they used um they uh, remember the Samaritans were a mixed people. There were a lot of Israelites that had mixed with um, other people that had settled that region. All right. So now we're getting a little bit technical here, but it's going to be important. So stick with me. If, you, if I lose you, let me know. So there's a Hebrew word, L. Everybody say L. See, you see, you can speak Hebrew now already. And you, you just said God in Hebrew, L. Okay, so the Hebrew word L. Now, if I want to, if I want to translate that into um, uh, in, in the Samaritan Targum, the way they translate it is instead of saying God, they say power. Uh, okay, and so the word is Hela. Hela. Everybody say Hela. Now, now you're bilingual, at least trilingual, right? Some of you for four languages, you know, uh, maybe even five. So um, we have God equals power. So God in Hebrew equals power in the in the targumim that's how they're doing it all right so um uh, uh the the next word um uh for god is great and that word is rab everybody say rab okay so rab hela is for great the great power as a reference to god so rab hela would be the uh, would be the the Aramaic Rab Hela, translated into English would be the great power, and that's talking about God's greatness. It's another way of saying think about uh, the Almighty. 
Okay, you ever heard of the Almighty? Who's the Almighty? The great power. Okay? I mean, if we, we, could, we could say the great power, we could say the Almighty, and we say the same thing. Everybody follow that. All right. So now, who are they calling the great power? They're calling Simon the great power. The Almighty. Interesting. So the great power. It's a, now, why did they, why in the Samaritan Targum, Targumim, or Targum, were they using this phrase, Rabhela, the great power, for God? Why? Um, so there was a, a belief, and uh, uh, still true to this day in, uh, in Judaism, that you don't say God's name. Okay? And so it comes from an understanding of the Ten Commandments not to take the Lord's name in vain. All right? Well, they, they took that to an extreme of you don't even say God's name at all except in very specific holy circumstances. In fact, so much so, we don't even really know how to say it anymore. We, we've got some academic ideas, um, but we don't re- we've lost the pronunciation of that, that four letters right there, Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, you start from the right. You see those four Hebrew letters? Those are the four Hebrew letters for the name of God, um, Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. Um, most often, you know, the, probably the most scholarly way of saying it is most likely Yahweh. There's some debate on it, but it has grammatical meaning, which Hebrew words have. If, if the whatever, however it's pronounced, pronounced, it will have Hebrew meaning. So, um, uh, and it's related to when God says, I am that I am, it's related to that grammatically. Um, so it's most likely Yahweh, but we don't know. We've lost it. Well, um, in, 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 your, in your Old Testament, anybody remember reading your Old Testament and you see the word LORD in all caps. They kind of capitalize the whole thing. Okay? Well, everywhere you see the word LORD, sometimes you'll see the word GOD. You might see LORD GOD, LORD lowercase, and GOD in all caps. Whenever you see that word LORD or GOD, all caps, that is literally Yahweh. That's what's in the Hebrew behind it, is Yahweh. Okay? Why? Because you don't say it. You substitute a word for it. So that you wouldn't say it accidentally the wrong way. Not the wrong way like you accidentally mispronounced it, but with the wrong attitude, not holy, in a vain way, you know, um, trying to observe that commandment. Though I understand that commandment to mean something different, um, certainly it encompasses not using God's name wrong. Um, so uh, one of the words that's used in Judaism is the word Hashem. Everybody say Hashem. It means the name. So rather than saying Yahweh, they would say Hashem, the name, so as a way of referencing. And interestingly, the Old Testament refers to a, a divine being as the name. There's this divine being called the name in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures. All right. So to keep from saying the divine name Yahweh, to keep from saying that, they use this what's called circumlocution. That's a big fancy word for you. This other way of saying it called the great power. Did I lose anybody? Everybody with me? All right. Does that make sense? You just got a huge lesson in understanding your Bible right there. In fact, it, it's so ingrained in my mind now when I'm reading my Bible and I see Lord, I automatically say Yahweh. You, if you ever see, watch me reading a passage, my, my eyes just see Yahweh now when I'm reading it. And try it and see how much meaning comes off the page at you. When you start reading that way, read the Psalms, read the prophets, read, you know, the stories and look at that all cap Lord or all cap God and, and, and out louds put the word Yahweh there. All of a sudden it's like, wow, it hits you in a whole different way. And then when you go to the New Testament and you see they call Jesus 
Lord, especially when they're quoting Old Testament passages where that Lord is Yahweh, now you understand what the New Testament authors are really trying to tell you. You catch this? You see this? They're trying to equate Jesus and Yahweh by making Jesus the same person that the Old Testament quotes as Yahweh. But because all we see is Lord, we miss it. That's how important this is. Well, this is similar. This passage is similar because we get the same thing with the great power. Here's Simon, the great power. Well, I mean, the way we read it in the text, we're reading the story. They called him God's great power. Oh, that's nice. They thought he was a great guy. No, this has meaning. This has meaning. They're using the word for Yahweh for him. All right, let's go. So I'm quoting Heiser here. But how could the Samaritans speak of Simon as though he were God? Well, Simon was doing amazing things. He was amazing them. He was doing things that were blowing them away, blowing their minds. Now, we don't know. We don't really know. Was he doing magic trickery, you know, like, you know, uh, kind of um, prestidigitation, you know, just sleight of hand kind of things? Um, or was he actually um, uh, operating a demonic power? Well, we don't know. It could be either. It could be both. Some combination thereof. It, either way, it had the same effect. They saw it as something divine. They saw it as something supernatural. And so they're giving him this supernatural title. Now, what's also important in, in the text is that uh, um, there, there's a plural well for it. You remember I told you, uh, um, Hela, Hela is power. Well, Helin is powers. That I-N on the end, from the A to the I-N, makes it plural. Like we would add an S. They, they put the I-N on the end, and that makes it plural right there. So it's the Samaritan word for angels, the powers. Now, the New Testament does the same thing. Paul says, you know, we wrestle against powers, principalities, spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. So powers is a, is a way that they are referencing divine beings as well. All right. So now we have something in common here. The, the Samaritans, the Jews and Christians all have something in common in our theology. Yahweh's name dwelled in one particular power, one particular angel in the Hebrew Scriptures. He was literally the embodied Yahweh, Yahweh in physical form. Now, this is common in Jewish theology, in Samaritan theology, and in Christian theology. And here it is in Exodus 23. This is Yahweh speaking to Moses, and this is what he says. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. So there will be an angel who's going to lead them. An angel just means messenger. That's all that means. It's not, it does, it's not referring to the status of a being. It's referring to uh, what the, um, the, 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 um, uh, uh, the, um, the job that that divine being is doing. Any status can do it. All right. Um, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. For he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. We're not talking about some mere angel. We're talking about somebody who has the ability to pardon sin. Anybody remind, reminded of a story, a, parable, um, a story in the New Testament when, when, uh, about Jesus and pardoning sin? Anybody remember that? Tell me what, what, a little bit about that story. What happened? Yes. Yes. Yep. 52 points. That's exactly right. 
Yeah, they're in Peter. They're in Peter's house. They break the roof open. They they lower this uh, uh, um, um, uh, invalid person down in front of them, and Jesus says, "Oh, oh, you, you're wanting my blessing. Okay, I forgive your sin." And everybody's like, "What? Who can do that by God?" I'll go. You think forgiving sins hard? You know, you think only God can do that? Okay, uh, who can do this? Rise up and walk. All right? You know, which one's harder? You know, the point being, Yahweh is the one that does both of these things. He's equating himself here. So for my name is in him, verse 22. But if you, if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, notice how that phrase is equating them. Obey his voice, do what I say. Interesting. Then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. And when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, I will blot them out. So we have this one special angel, the angel of Yahweh, um, um, uh, 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 referred to all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. He's a physical manifestation of the true God. Um, He is the great power in the Samaritan Pentateuch. All right? So Simon had convinced many people that he was literally the fleshly manifestation of God. He was Yahweh embodied. Simon had convinced many people that he was an incarnation, a physical manifestation of Yahweh. He is God's great power, the great power of Yahweh. All right, now, if we understand that, we can understand why Luke wanted this story included in the... How many think that Luke literally included every story of everything that happened in the entire uh, lifespan of the early church in the book of Acts? No? No? You think he might have purposely picked and chose certain stories? Yes? That would be smart. That would be understanding. And so if he purposely picked them, he had a reason for each one. Now we can begin to understand why he wanted this story in there. It wasn't just because there were Samaritans. All right? It was also this thing about this, this being who was claiming to be the incarnation of God or who people called the incarnation of God. Here's one called the great power. He's the bodily manifestation of God. He's in Samaria. What does Philip do? Philip goes to Samaria with a message about what? God becoming man. He, Philip goes to Samaria, goes to the city, and once he start preaching, the good news of the kingdom of God. Uh, you know, the incarnation of God, becoming man, Jesus, dying on your behalf. His name's Jesus Christ. And what happens as a result of this? The Samaritans have their own incarnate deity. You have a clash. I got Simon the magician, God's great power. God's great power is there, and Philip comes in to proclaim, no, let me tell you about the real God's great power. So what happens as a result of this clash? There's literally a breakthrough of gospel power. Even the one called God's great power gives his life to God's great power. Do you see the irony? Do you see the beauty? Do you see the symmetry? Here's one called God's great power who ends up bowing down to the one who is God's great power. That's pretty cool. But if you didn't know all this, you couldn't see how cool it was. Why Philip, why, I mean, not Philip, but why Luke wants this story in here. So Simon embraces Philip's message. Now, here's an important 
uh, important note. It's very important. Simon embraced the message first and then followed Philip around. Now, why is that important? We're going to see. So he embraced him. He hears the message, the good news of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. His name is Jesus Christ. And, 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 and in the text, the way the text is given to us, Simon hears, believes, and receives first, and then he follows him around. What does he do? What happens after he follows him around? When he saw the signs and miracles Philip perform, the great power was drained. In other words, he believed first. He says, that's true. He came to the truth of the message first, and then he saw all the great power, the signs and miracles Philip was doing. Now, this is before Peter and John got there. He hadn't seen that yet. Okay? He just saw what Philip, and now he literally is drained. Because why? Why is he drained? What did he know? He knew what a trick was, and he knew what the real thing was. He's the master of tricks. He goes, that's not a trick. That's the real thing. You see the testimony. The one who knows what the trick is and the real is gives up the trick in order to embrace the real. He embraced the truth of it, and then he saw the power of it, and was like, oh, my goodness. So this is quoting here from, from Heiser. Simon's conversion reads quite genuine. Luke is careful to note, though, that Simon saw the powerful deeds of Philip only after he believed, when he began accompanying Philip in the city. Even Simon himself, here it is in the text, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Notice he believed first, and then he saw. You see, why is it so important? Because our faith cannot rest on signs and wonders. Our faith has to rest on the truth of the gospel. Our faith doesn't rest on signs and wonders. It rests on the truth of the gospel. Sometimes God will do signs and wonders. Sometimes he will allow us to go through all kinds of suffering. Neither of which establishes or, or, uh, or um, um, de-establishes the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is established in the person of Jesus Christ, period. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't seek and earnestly desire? No, we absolutely should. In fact, we're going to see that in a, in a few minutes. But nonetheless, that's not what we stand on. We first stand on him. All right, so what happens next? Jerusalem gets word, right? And, and the gospel's going to the Samaritans. The problem is, the Samaritans, the Jews hate the Samaritans. The Samaritans hate the Jews. There is tremendous animosity between these two groups of people. I mean tremendous. You go, I don't have time tonight, but go sometime and look at what they would do to one another to really just mess each other up. Uh, you know, the, the, if the Jews were heading south, if the Jews that lived up in Galilee, lived up in the north, if they were heading south to go to Jerusalem, usually near a feast time, they would most of the time travel, make their way on the other side of the Jordan and come down because if they were going south through Samaritan, the Samaritans would try to do something to defile them so they couldn't participate in the, uh, uh, in the feast. And, 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 you know, there was there were equally equal hatred going in the other direction as well. So there's this deep hatred by pure Jews. And, and here it is in John. This is John recording it in his, in his gospel. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, remember Jesus at the well? This is Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman. They're, now, you're traveling north through Samaria. They usually left you alone. You just didn't have anything to do with one another. And so Jesus traveling north back to Galilee with his disciples. He's at the well. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from, from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, what's really significant about that passage is that you wouldn't have men having dealings with women, period. But that's not the big issue here. That's an issue. But the real issue is a Jew talking to a Samaritan. Oh, my goodness. You see, even greater than breaking the cultural norms was breaking the cultural hatred. Jesus was breaking the cultural hatred. Um, And so here you got Peter and John. I mean, here you got Philip heading that way, and Philip's just giving the love of Jesus to everybody. He's he walking into town. Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Something happens in your heart when Jesus happens in your heart. Something changes in your heart when Jesus happens in your heart. So Philip goes up. He's got Jesus. Y'all need to have Jesus. Yes. So what do Peter and John immediately do? They go. Now, what's interesting is why are they going? They're not going. Oh, oh I'm wondering if, were, if the Samaritans really did receive Jesus. Is that really? They're not going to see if this is true. They automatically believe it's true. They want to do one thing. We want to make sure they have everything Jesus wants to give them. That's the reason they're going. They are motivated for love for a people that are naturally hated. Culturally hated, not naturally, culturally hated. That's what the text tells us. You see, if you understand the culture, and then you read what the text says, all of a sudden these details come jumping off at the page at you, and it's amazing. Peter and John's motivation is to give them more, not to be skeptical. Mm. See, they, they want to pray for the Samaritan believers. They want to make sure they receive the Holy Spirit. They want them to have the same Holy Spirit they received on the day of Pentecost. The same Holy Spirit that's been dwelling with them ever since. Now, when the apostles, I'm reading the text to you so you can remind you what it said. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John immediately. Oh, Samaria's got the word. Go, guys. And who came down and prayed. Now, I've got to throw this in there. Notice it says came down. Where is Samaria compared to Jerusalem? Here's Samaria, where's Jerusalem? Where is it? North. Would you say that's going up or down? Up, right? The reason why it doesn't, you can test me on this. Check this out, all through the book of Acts. Jerusalem is considered the highest point because it's the highest point spiritually. It's where God's name is. And so anytime you're going to, to Jerusalem, you're going up. Anytime you're leaving Jerusalem, you're going down. And you'll see it in the text over and over. In fact, anybody heard the name Aaliyah? Have I heard that name before? Aaliyah? It's a girl's name. I've, I know some girl's name, Aaliyah. It's, um, it's, it's from the Hebrew word, Aliyah. Aliyah. To make Aliyah. Now, if you hear, you may hear from time to time uh, Jews living outside of Israel who want to make Aliyah. That means they want to come, return to the homeland. Well, Aliyah means to go up. To make Aliyah means to go up. So anytime I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going up. So right here in the text, they're coming down from Jerusalem. It's just a reference. It's a belief. You're seeing the culture come out in the pages. Okay, you're seeing this understanding. And so even Luke is, is writing this way. Um, 
So, so he, they come down. They want to, to pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Um, what an incredible, powerful message. Amen? Now, um, what we're not, I'm going to hit this tonight, and we, we can talk about this later when we do a little bit of discussion. Um, what I'm not going to talk about tonight is, um, um, because I've got some other things, and, and it's, it's beyond the scope, but I will, I will say this because it's come up. Some people want to know, well, wait a minute. If they believed in the Lord Jesus, didn't they receive the Holy Spirit then? And so um, there are different theological beliefs that are going on here. There are some who would say, well, the moment you believe, you have the Holy Spirit and the fullness of all the Holy Spirit at that moment. Um, there are others who would say, the moment you believe, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, but there is also a gifting of the Holy Spirit for outward manifestation that would be separate. Um, and that's the, uh, what was received at Pentecost and what they're praying for here. Then you have um, a, a kind of a third position that uh, I, bet, I guess is probably best enumerated by Watchman Nee. You can read about it in a book called um, The Normal Christian Life, who would say um, that the moment one believes, they are filled with, or, uh, filled with the indwelling Holy Spirit. Um, uh, and there is also a, um, a, a point in which um, that indwelling Holy Spirit manifests outwardly and that is a separate experience from the indwelling of the holy spirit so clearly in this passage they become believers they become saved why because they're baptized anyone who believes in 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 believers baptism would say you would have to be saved first before you're baptized so clearly they're believers clearly they're saved then they become baptized and clearly they experience uh, a filling of the Holy Spirit subsequent to that in this passage. Now, I'm going to say that's what the passage is teaching. Um, um, all right. So, um, and I, I personally have had that same experience in my life. And we can have that, uh, we can talk about that later if you want. But that's not the scope of tonight. But because it comes up, and I know it's in people's minds, I know different ones are, are thinking about it. I just wanted to point that out. Uh, this is one of those texts that clearly demonstrates that there is an outward manifestation of the Holy Spirit that is separate and distinct from um, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that happens at salvation. And the other thing that I think is important about it is that the apostles understood that this was for all believers, not just the apostles. Because there are some that say this was just for the apostles for a period of time. But here, the apostles were concerned that all the believers were participating in this. They want to see everyone, even those who were culturally their enemies. So, powerful message. Two Jewish men of their times grew up on their own with their own Samaritan prejudices. You know, why is Jesus talking to her back then? Now they had the love of Jesus in their heart. They have no doubt of God's grace. The people they once scorned, um, uh, and all they want to do is give them the love of Christ. This is a huge message right here. All they want to do is see the fullness of Christ in the lives of these individuals. Everybody with me so far? All right, we're covering a lot of ground. All right, where are we? Oh, actually, I'm pretty close to discussion. All right, so here's the problem. Simon's got a lot to learn. Simon the musician, he's got a lot to learn. He didn't understand. He, you know, he's, he's received the great power. You know, he's, he's received Christ. Um, 
but he, he doesn't understand all of it. He's a brand new. He's a baby believer. He just, his day is old in the Lord. You know, he's not been a believer very long at all. Um, he, he watches Peter and John lay hands. He saw the, the people receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what is evident in that, and this is really important, is clearly something powerful and tangible happened when the people received the Holy Spirit. Clearly, there was some outward manifestation. Otherwise, what in the world does he want to pay money for? Is he, you don't want to pay money for nothing? He's like, he saw something powerful happen when, he laid, when they laid hands on it. Something manifested, something tangible. It was evident that the Holy Spirit had fallen on him. In fact, it was even more amazing than Philip, what Philip was doing. He didn't, ask, he didn't offer Philip money for the miracles that Philip was doing. So something was even more amazing to him, so amazing, that he desired to experience this power. Now, was he wrong for wanting to desire to experience that power? No, he wasn't wrong for wanting to desire the, the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at the scriptures. This is Paul writing. Earnestly desire higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. Paul's saying, earnestly desire the gifts. Okay, but not just once, second time. Same, same, uh, same uh, uh, passage. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. But yet, that's not the last time he says it. Three times in the same passage, in the same teaching, Peter says, So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now, what's fascinating to me about this passage here, again, we're a little off, but I, I want to pull this all together, is that what Paul is doing, he's going to the Corinthians um, and he's with this letter and he's correcting their behaviors. Why? Because they're doing a lot of things. They're, they're experiencing a lot of manifestation of the Holy Spirit, and they're, but they're doing it out of order. <clears throat> they're doing it with wrong motive. And so Paul's trying to correct them. Look, okay, but what he doesn't do is he doesn't ever say, stop doing it. He says, earnestly desire it. Do it more. I do it more than y'all. And he said y'all because he's from Texas. Anyway, <laughs> he said, I do it more than y'all. Earnestly desire it. Want it. But do it right do it with humility. Do it testing. Do it properly. But don't stop doing it. He wanted to bring order to it, not a cessation of it. And that's an important distinction. He didn't say, wait until you get mature and then start doing it. Notice, God didn't wait till they got mature before he bestowed the gift. He bestowed it on them immediately. And then required them to get mature through it. Notice that. Notice how the text deals with it. Because I'm telling you, these are all the things I've heard. These are all the things I've heard from leaders and churches. And all. Oh yeah, we believe in that. But we, you know, we want to see people mature before we do. We want everything done decently. Yes, we want it done decently in order. But we want it done. You see, it's both. It's, not, it's a both and. It's not an either or according to the scripture. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? And that's what's that. So he wasn't wrong for desiring that. So what went wrong? He wanted to pay for it. So this is demonstrating. I, 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 this is a different level of desire. This isn't a, earnestly hungering for spiritual things. This is now entering the level of pleasing the flesh. I want show. I want power. So he's taking it to another level here. Now when the 
when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone in whom I may lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing. What happens? Number one, Peter comes down. I mean, he cuts no slack. Now, he doesn't quite go as far as Ananias and Sapphira. Good for Simon, you know. He doesn't quite go that far. Everybody know the story? Anybody not know the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Everybody knows it? You don't know it? Very simple. So people were, were the, 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 the believers were all gathered together. And they, and they were living together in common. And people would take and they'd sell their entire property. And they'd take all the money and they'd bring it in. And they'd say, here, here's money we can all live off of. And they would just literally share everything in common. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they had a big old piece of property. And they decided they liked how it made other people look when they were giving everything. So they wanted the look. But they really didn't want to give everything. So they sold their property. And they said, eh, why don't we just kind of put some of this in our back pocket? And then they go and they say, okay, guys, here's all the money we got so they could get the look. And right away, Ananias goes in first. And Peter and, and the Holy Spirit speaks straight to Peter. And he says, uh, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. And he literally dies right then and there. And then his wife comes walking in and Peter gives her a chance. Did you sell all of your property for this amount of money? Oh, yes, that's exactly what we sold it for. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. And she dies right then and there. And it literally caused holy fear to come across the entire uh, 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 congregation of the body of Christ at that time. Okay? So here's, here's somebody else trying to get a look for money. Now, Peter harshly rebukes this guy, but he doesn't, he doesn't get the Ananias and Sapphira effect. Good for him, right? Um, what happened? What does Simon actually do? And you, I've looked this up. I looked this up in, in multiple commentaries. And there are multiple commentators who agree with Heiser here. Um, he, he repents. It seems like a genuine repentance here. There seems to be a It's like this guy is green. He doesn't know anything. He comes out of this world where he's living. He's the great power. He sees power. He's got money. Oh, I can get it with money. He, you know, this, this, this evil comes out of his heart, but he repents. And yet, what's he known for today? Not for his repentance. Not for his repentance. There's a, there is a common cultural story that when I say his name, we will all, we can see this motif in that story. I'll say his name. As soon as I say it, you'll see this motif in this story. Can anybody take a guess of what that story is? All right, I'll tell you, it comes out of the UK. I'll tell you, it comes from Charles Dickens. Scrooge. The moment you call somebody a Scrooge, you're not calling them a guy who repented and gave and, and lived the end of his life in, in joy and giving and everything. You're talking about a guy who's greedy and stingy. He was remembered for the greed and stinge, not for his repentance and, you know, getting Tiny Tim the surgery and all this other stuff. Interesting, huh? We've got the same kind of story going on here. Here's Simon, who's known for simony. All throughout church history, simony. And yet the story actually ends. The last word we have for him in Scripture is his repentance. Now, there's, there's some legend that goes on. Um, there's, some, there's some stories outside of Scripture that talk about um, a, a, a Simon who was leading people astray in another place. And some people say it's the same guy. It could be. Um, uh, but... 
the word scripture leaves us with is his repentance. That's where scripture leads us. Yet, when we think of Simon the magician, we always think of simony. You know, you might use that term, but that's what you think of. You think Scrooge. You know, isn't that interesting? Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord if, that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. He's saying you're super close here to committing the, 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 the sin that can't be forgiven. Uh, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me. How many people, you know, that's like, you know, Peter took um, uh, that, the course, Win Friends Influence People. <laughs> Imagine hearing a message. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So here's my question. This is what I want us to discuss. Here's our question for discussion before we see how Heiser winds this up. Should Peter have been so harsh on Simon? Or should we judge Simon as harshly as Peter did? This whole harsh thing, should we judge Simon so harshly? That's our discussion point. I'll open that up. Perfect time for a drink. Um, you think Peter should have admonished him, or do you think we should look at that as an admonishment? Which? Okay, so um, so we should we should be gentle on Simon in history, is what you're saying. Okay. Anybody else? Hang on, Carmen, and then D. No, 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 go ahead. You had your hand up first, and then we'll do D. Okay. So Car- Carmen is saying that, that what Peter is doing is of the Spirit of God in order to break that Spirit out of him. So the harshness was necessary to lead him to repentance. Okay. D? You're saying the same thing. You feel the same thing, that, 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 the, that what Peter did was necessary in the moment and that he was being led of the Lord to do this. All right. Um, anybody else? Mabel? Okay. All right, so we get a fair amount of consensus on this. This is a, a little bit of conversation. But I'm going to change the question out a little bit. What about his reputation in history? Simony. Is that a fair reputation? Is it fair that he goes down in history uh, with the reputation of um, the one who tried to buy the power of the Spirit? So, so what should his reputation be? One who is forgiven. Hmm. Anybody else? 
Yeah, that, the asking, remember, he's a brand new believer. He doesn't know anything, okay? He knows very little. And the commentators, there's a, there's a fair amount of agreement on, yes, this is genuine repentance. He is doing what he knows to do to say, I don't want this in my life. What repentance simply is, it's not the words you speak, it's a return to God. That's what repentance is. And, and, and what it appears is a genuine return to God. Okay? A, a, a cry out to help from those who have led him to the Lord is a return to God. Um, and so that's what it appears. So, yeah, I w- I'm going to agree with the commentators that, yes, this is a real repentance. So let's, let's just agree with that. There is some who say maybe not, um, and they typically rely on these traditions of the, of the stories that come later that, that aren't in the Scripture at all in, in their um, uh, position that maybe not. Um, but the ones that are just saying, look, all we've got is the text and we're looking at the text. The text is pretty clear. It leaves us with him returning. Um, which is Heiser's positions taken in the book here. So, um, but let's leave it at that and let's make that, that assumption for our conversation. Is it fair then that he goes down in history with the reputation of simony? And what does that tell you about the church? What's our tendency? Do I? To leave the label. Yeah. Yeah. That, to 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 leave the labels behind because those labels don't define us. Yeah. Okay. What else? Okay, so, um, so, so Sally's making the, the point that, the, the very obvious point, because Scripture's making the point, what he did was extremely serious to his own soul, the cost of his own soul. And that exposing that in, in this way because of how he did it was important. So, I mean, would we agree that that was important, that that, that, that should have been done? I mean, I'm going to say yes because the Scripture did it, because I'm going to be on the side of Scripture. Y'all can disagree with Scripture if you want. <laughs> but, but my question, though, is, should Simon have gone down in history, remembered for that, when he repented afterwards? Okay, I mean, I can, I, well, I mean, we see it in the text here, and I can get you some, some of the commentaries if you want to see that. Well, of course, but isn't that, that's called the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's a return to God. So, 
Okay. Fair, fair enough. I'm offering you a new interpretation then. I'm offering you a new interpretation that, uh, by and large, interpreters, and I agree with it, that what's going on here is that you've got a baby believer. He knows nothing. He's a baby believer who uh, clearly does something egregious and immediately... So an unrepentant person, and if you look at this throughout Scripture, an unrepentant person gets angry at the person who calls them out. It doesn't, they don't show a sense of brokenness. A broken and contrite heart is what he's exhibiting. He is broken because of this. That's a broken and, and contrite heart. When, when you look at, I'll, I'll tell you that probably the best passages to look at to kind of to get your parallel for this. So the question for those that are listening in, the question is, is did Simon repent? And, and um, Mabel brings up a fair point because it doesn't say Simon repented. All right. But how do we know? And if we look at the pattern of repentance in Scripture, what is repentance? Repentance is a change of heart in returning to God. Okay, what does a non-repentant heart do? Cain kills his brother. Cain gets called out. He kills his brother. Okay, does Simon seek to kill? Does Simon seek to 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 tell Peter and, and John they're wrong? Does Simon or um, now let's, let's use the kings? When the prophets go to the kings and the prophets say you need to change your heart and repent, what do the kings seek to do? Kill the prophets. To stamp them out, to stop their word. That's an unrepentant heart. What does David do when Nathan comes to him? He completely submits and surrenders to the word that's spoken to him. He has a repentant heart. He's returning to God. All right, if we take these pictures in Scripture, and now we put it into this narrative here, what does Simon do? Does Simon go to kill Peter? Does Simon have to stop the word? Does Simon close his ears? Does Simon show a hardened heart? Or does Simon show... A heart that is broken because of this. Pray that that doesn't happen. I mean, look, what he just said was really harsh. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, and he is in the beginning stages. So what we see by the pattern of Scripture is a heart returning, not a heart hardening. That's a sign of repentance. So, uh, but I want to get back to my question because we still got it out there and we haven't answered it. Because there's a really important, uh, and I need to finish up. Um, there's a really important point I want us to grab out of this. A really important something we need to take from this. I think it's a real important lesson for the church. And then we'll see how Heiser winds this up. Simon is known in history for simony. That's what he's known for. But um, uh, um, but we see this guy with a broken spirit. We see this guy returning. That's how the scripture leaves it. We see him repenting. What? In this last verse right here. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. This is a, this is a broken and contrite spirit. Yeah, but that's not, that's not the grammar of the text. The grammar of the text 
is that he is, he is appealing to them for their help. He is appealing to them. He is making an appeal, which is a return, not a hardened heart pressed against. So, but let's, let's just go with it. Just stick with me for now. We can have more conversation later so that we can move the class on. Because um, I want to close out. I don't want to hold everybody. Um, uh, so what's the important point to take out of this? What's the real important thing to take? Guys, this is crucial. Do we want to see people with repentant hearts? Or do we want to see people hiding their sin? What kind of environment do we need to create in the church? One where people can confess to one another? Or one where people are afraid to confess? If we're going to walk around holding people's reputations against them and everything remembered for all the things that they did before they repented, how are we creating an environment for the Holy Spirit to really move and bring repentance in hearts? We're, we're actually telling people not to confess. That's the environment. The moment somebody shares something, and, and, and if, if, we're, if, we, if, if, if the, our first reaction is to act shocked, and oh my goodness, I can't believe... I mean, look, it doesn't mean you need to like what you heard. But how many of us actually hearts break when we go, oh, I'm so sorry that you went through that. I'm glad you're confessing. Let's pray that the consequences of that God may remove. Now, I think that regardless of what you think of The Chosen, I've been going back and rewatching because the new ones that are coming out, there's some episodes in The Chosen early on Matthew, who was a tax collector, joins the group, and the group, over and over, they don't like him. And when Jesus sends out the 12, this, I don't think this really happened, but I like what the authors, were, they're trying to give this message. When Jesus sends the 12 out two by two, he sends Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Their past lives puts the two of them. I mean, those guys, you know, Matthew would have been, the Zealot would have killed him in real life before Jesus. I love the way the show did that. I don't think that really happened. I think that's the drama, but I think it's making this point. And the point that the show makes is we've got to have this place where we can bring, where allow one another to get those things that are in our lives out in order to be free. And if I'm going to be afraid of what everyone else is going to say and what everybody else is going to think, look, I don't think we need to stand up in front of the church and confess, but we've confessed everything. But I think we need to have that ability to do that with one another. And uh, far too often, far too often, everything gets killed. So I'm going to save all questions at this point, and I'm going to close out. I want to see what Heiser says. And then if you have questions, come up afterwards. So what did Heiser say? This is how he closes. Because of his on-the-spot repentance, not to mention the fact that he probably had only been a believer for at most a couple weeks, it seems unreasonable to vilify Simon. In Simon... We have a man who was one day hailed as the incarnate God, but the, next, uh, but the next repented at the words of a couple of fishermen. I mean, when you look at the contrast of what the story is telling, he's walking around as proud as can be, hailed as the incarnate God, and now these two fishermen 
uh, cut to the quick by the words of the Holy Spirit. And he cries out humbly, save me. We should remember the broken heart more than the misguided gesture. Save me, not I'm the God. I think that's a powerful, powerful way of taking away. There's so much that comes out of this story. Everybody, get, did you see, get a lot out of this story tonight? A lot more than you had before? Yeah. All right. So next week, we're going to get into uh, the devil's in the details. And we're going to go, who is this character, Azazel? In some of your Bibles, you don't even see his name. And I'll show you where it is in your Bibles. It's in there. Uh, who's this guy in the Day of Atonement? This guy, Azazel. Who's this character? What's that all about? That's where we're going to go next week in the Old Testament. Let's close out in prayer. Father, we bless you. We thank you, Lord, for the grace you have poured on us that we might be washed and cleansed. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. Father, may we, may we understand the debt that has been canceled and forgiven on our behalves, that we might offer that same forgiveness to one another. That same grace, that same kindness that would lead to repentance. We thank you for the conviction of your spirit that brings about brokenness and contrite of heart. And we thank you that you take our sins and remember them no more, cut them off as far as the east is from the west. You do not see us as our junk. You see us as your, your beloved children. May we, as the body of Christ, live and, and move and have our being in accordance with the fruit of your Spirit. We bless you. We thank you for these words. May they move and, and bring change in our hearts. And we honor you in what we're about. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Now, uh, so, again, we're closing out a little bit early. I've been, I've been purposely trying to close this early so we can spend a time fellowshipping with one another, talking with one another. Is there anybody that has a prayer request in here? A specific prayer request? We'll make sure we pray for